New York is a city obsessed with real estate. When it comes to celebrities, we're intrigued to find out who lives where and marvel at the high prices they paid for their apartments. We love to catch a glimpse inside the windows of historic townhouses or high-priced co-ops on Fifth Avenue. We want to know how much our friends or colleagues are shelling out for that one bedroom in Williamsburg. And perhaps more importantly, how do they manage to snag such a sweet apartment? Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, we're peeking behind the doors of some of New York City's most sought-after apartments, as well as learning about how we can research the history of our own buildings. In New York, it's a good idea to check if your building has a landmark status to see if somebody's already done some research. That's coming up this morning on Cityscape. But first, in his new book, Manhattan Classic, New York's Finest Pre-War Apartments, author Jeffrey Lynch gives us an intimate look at some of the city's most lavish addresses. Jeffrey's with us in the studio this morning. Jeffrey, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, George. It's great to be here. Between what years were Manhattan's pre-war apartment buildings constructed? Mostly between 1870 and the 1930s, but uh, a lot of them were really built between about 1910 and 1930. when entire neighborhoods of of the Upper West Side and Upper East Side were just demolished and completely rebuilt. It was pretty remarkable. But the apartment house kind of got off to a slow start, but once it got moving, it just uh, took off, and people loved them. Who were they designed to attract? Families. That uh, It's interesting that nowadays not many families live in cities, and certainly that uh, New York has grown and a lot are living in the city now. But at the time that any respectable family had a townhouse back then, you didn't share a roof at all. That was just uh, unforgivable in social circles. But real estate was getting expensive. They were kind of slowly running out of room to build townhouses. So they're figuring out how to build apartment buildings. Tenement buildings were kind of not acceptable to many families at the time, or I guess they had strict rules about where you could live. So developers were trying to figure out how to build bigger buildings and get families to share a roof. And uh, now it's very commonplace, and you don't even think about it, but back then it was was a big deal. There were a few examples, like um, on 18th Street, I think it was 1869, there was the Stuyvesant House, and it was one of the first where they tried it. But then they figured the best way is go super luxury, and that's the way to convince high-end families that living in an apartment building, sharing a roof, living over top of one another was okay. Who were among the most notable architects of these buildings? Uh, the, the one you hear a lot of is uh, Rosario Candela, and he came from Sicily. He was an immigrant. He really designed the most fanciful and the spectacular ones. So uh, you hear a lot about the famous people who live in 740 Park Avenue or Rupert Burdock was recently living in, uh, I think it's 834 Fifth Avenue. And uh, they're really, really magical. There was J.E.R. Carpenter. He did the super refined, super restrained buildings, mostly on Fifth Avenue and Park. But the, a big part of the book was that there, it was more than just the most fabulous buildings, that it's not just about the celebrities. And there were a lot of architects who you'd never heard of and just kind of vanished, but actually who built most of the city. The architect behind Grand Central Terminal also designed apartment houses, right? Oh, yeah, that uh, Warren and Wetmore, that... Uh, they designed, um, I guess as they were doing Grand Central, that uh, it's it, it's uh, hard to remember sometimes that Park Avenue at the time was a train pit. It was a pretty rotten part of town. And now you see you know, the Upper East Side's all fancy, the great shops, some of the most beautiful apartment houses. 
But what it really started out with was that they're going to build this Grand Central, and they had all this real estate over top of the train platforms. And so what do you put there? Well, you put this Grand Avenue, this Grand Boulevard, and you build apartment houses around it. And so some of the best apartment houses, many actually now demolished, were d designed by Warren and Wetmore that now the stretch of Park Avenue between uh, Grand Central and uh, 59th Street's all office buildings. But it started as apartment houses. There aren't many left. There's one, one of my favorites is 417 Park Avenue. It's surrounded by glassy office buildings, but it's kind of one of the remnants of what Park used to look like south of 59th. That being said, how many of these buildings have landmark status? Um, not too many on their own, actually. Certainly in neighborhoods they do, that, uh, you know, large sections of the Upper East Side and now the Upper West Side, they have more neighborhoods. But it's, um, I think that living in a building, you don't want it to be a landmark. You want to live in an imp importantly historic building, but you don't want all the restrictions of landmark status. What are the defining characteristics of pre-war buildings? Uh, it's, it starts at the front door. The developers back then were trying to get people to give up their townhouses. So say you went to, you know, back in the old days, an open house. You went to look at a townhouse or you went to look at an apartment house. Why would you move into an apartment building where, you know, maybe it's not right. You know, maybe it's not socially acceptable. So it starts at the front door. You feel like you're living in part of a palace, part of a grand palazzo with the canopy over the front door, the doorman, the small lobby. But also, it was very discreet and very private. You know, the doors aren't wide open. You can't see in deliberately. Privacy, discreetness, and kind of the stone base, there's the permanence. And then the whole way to your apartment as well. Usually back then, there weren't kind of the corridors that connected all the apartments together. You arrived, and maybe there were three or four apartments uh, when you got out of your elevator. So again, privacy, you're alone. It's kind of like having a house in the sky. And then once you were in, it was... It was the center hall plan. When you have a house, you arrive, and there's your stair hall. Hi, I'm home, honey. You drop your keys, and you kiss your kids. And the apartments needed the same thing. It's really only achievable when you have kind of multiple elevators and multiple discrete uh, uh, elevator lobbies. But they, they were just spectacular. So they got you from the front door, you know, waiting outside all the way to your apartment. And then once you were in, of course, that uh, it's the herringbone floors, it's the details. You know, it's the door handles, the solid oak doors, eight-foot doors, the marble all over the place. And it's just that they really shaped the apartments to be, because they were competing with townhouses, they had to kind of make houses. And some of the best examples that you'll see, you know, they're fabulous ones on Park Avenue. But you walk in, you come out of an elevator lobby, and you feel like you're in a house. You know, two-story lobby, circular stair, you're, you're, you're home, which is really the, the beauty of them. Do you find that modern-day tenants are preserving the historic character of these apartments, or are they modernizing? I think actually much more so now because, that the, you know, the real estate frenzy going on now, uh, that uh, more and more of the public recognize the beauty of these apartments. The prices are skyrocketing because they're in such demand. And finding a classic pre-war with the original moldings, kind of that timeless pre-war feel, is, it's not impossible to find, but it's harder. And so, and I think more and more, yeah, people want that original historic uh, look to them. How varied are the layouts of the apartments featured in your book? Uh, they're, in many ways, they're all over the map. That, uh, you know, that each different property size kind of needed different layouts, but the 
the bones of them and the themes of them are remarkably consistent and uh, maybe a good example is that uh, you know if you think of the fabulous ones on, on Park or Fifth or Central Park West that grand foyers and then grand rooms but a friend of mine years ago uh, bought a studio in Gramercy Park uh, Gramercy House on 22nd Street and it's a studio but there it was all the same parts you know you walked into a foyer it was just very small but you had the inlaid floor you had a you know arched opening and everything like that you walked into a living room that had inlaid floor and it just it, it, it was beautiful there's a dressing room in a studio and so it had all the same parts they were just smaller but it made you know usually you think of a studio on a starter apartment mm-hmm. they were beautiful are these all co-ops mostly uh mostly yeah they were all originally um, rentals, uh, but they were transformed to co-ops. But it's interesting today to see that there are some, uh, like 15 Central Park West or other uh, new ones where they're definitely condos. How hard is it to get into these buildings? Very. Uh, <laughs> for the more modest ones, uh, not so much. But it's it's not just about money. Whether you agree or not, it's about philanthropy, social status, just being probably a decent person, too. They are very selective. In the recent financial crisis we had, that I think the co-ops in New York City probably had some of the, you know, don't quote me on the percentages, but some of the fewest foreclosures in the entire country. And so that it's, it's about who comes in, but also their financial restrictions are, are more strict than the bank's. And I guess it's it's not quite like you're living with a family, but everyone wants to make sure that, uh, you know, you can pay your bills. I would think there's also not a whole lot of turnover in these buildings. Not much. In the nicest buildings that it's almost impossible to get into and uh, that, you know, if it comes on the market, it's all discreet. I think those that they're – it's a bit like fine art where if you go to a top gallery and say, I want to buy that painting, I think you can't. That they say, you know, all these other people are in line to get the, you know, the next hotshot painting from whatever gallery. But the more modest ones, that there's a lot more turnover. And when I was working on the book, it was such great fun to go to open houses and see larger ones, smaller ones, the the best buildings, the more modest buildings. And um, again, a big part of the book was that you can find a candela not just on Fifth Avenue, but 800 West End Avenue up at 99th Street. And they're not cheap now, but um, that uh, the, the kind of the not billionaires amongst us can actually live in them too. How did you gain access to these buildings? Uh, mostly open houses. And uh, it was great just to wander around on Saturday and Sunday afternoon. You know, they have these windows of uh, you know one to three or two to four. And you go see them. And it was in part that I was looking for an apartment for myself. My parents said, you know, you're staying in the city, time to buy. In in school studying architecture, that uh, you know, apartments were units. They were modern. They were clean. They were slick. But they weren't that lovable. And so I just went around and saw a lot of them and just went to bigger ones as well. That The, 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 the fanciest ones are, of course, all by appointment. But I learned a lot about the city, the people. I barely knew where the Upper West Side was. You know, West End Avenue, when you live downtown, seems like a world away. And you're from Canada originally. Uh, Toronto, yeah. And so I discovered a lot about the city and the history of the city, too. So are you living in a pre-war apartment now? It's the question I get asked all the time. Actually, no. My wife and I live downtown, and uh, we live in an uh, oddly all-glassy uh, apartment. But... Um, 
we looked a lot uptown, but my wife, uh, when we were buying our current place, uh, her office was downtown. And so we thought, you know, it could be a five-minute walk or, um, uh, or a 45-minute ride on the subway. At, at my office, we do really very modern buildings. We, we renovate historic buildings as well. But I learned that it's good to study the best of history to learn about what to do nowadays, uh, that some modern architects think history is hogwash and they don't need to look at it. But um, it, what's fascinating to see is that the the fanciest, most beautiful, most expensive new apartments they're building these days, though, we read about the the um, super tall towers on Central mm-hmm. Park South. The 157th and, Street, it, yes. Yeah, or a friend of mine is uh, uh, working on 432 Park Avenue. And um, the uh, the apartments are remarkably classic in their layouts. That is kind of that the apartment designs almost come full circle where you don't feel like you're in a pre-war, but the center hall plans, the sequence of spaces, the proportions of the rooms, the obsessive attention to detail in a modern way. So it's great to see that uh, the architects are, are looking at the past to learn how to design the future. New luxury buildings today often feature gyms and community rooms. What are among the most elaborate amenities you'll find in a pre-war building? Uh, back then, it was private dining rooms. That, uh, in some ways, that things haven't changed. That they were they were advertised having state-of-the-art kitchens, bathrooms, and uh, kind of creating this kind of uh, kind of fortress-like community almost. And you know, you had a rough day at work, and uh, you go and you eat in your private dining room. Would be something that would uh, uh, be fun to try once. <laughs> You say in the book that 825th Avenue is one of the most expensive addresses in the world. What is particularly special about that building? The design of the uh, of the outside is very sophisticated, but very reserved, uh, very, very refined. And it has that sense of permanence to it where, uh, again, when they were designing them, it was very important that it felt like the buildings had been there 500 years, 1,000 years. They'd be there another 1,000 years and kind of the, the sense of old money and respectability at the time. And it is certainly one of those. It really um, it, it feels like an Italian palazzo. It feels like it is the, the style and refinement of you know, the Renaissance almost. And then inside that the apartments are just, they're enormous. I'm pretty sure there's just one per floor. So you get that privacy, exclusivity, but in some respects, it's not, you know, sometimes when you think of something that's well, so expensive, so desirable, well, it'll look spectacular. Uh, but I think that a lot of the wealthiest people, they, they don't want to stand out too much and draw too much attention to themselves. So it's kind of that understated elegance, like a, a very beautiful suit from Naples that just fits perfectly, but it's just gray. You know, it's, and that building is... Again, I don't live in that world, but it is just very, very beautiful, but understated at the same time. How expensive can these apartments get? Oh, up to these days, forty, fifty, sixty million dollars. It's 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 amazing. I love this description in your book. You say if the Titanic had been parked on Twenty Third Street <laughs> between Ninth and Tenth Avenues, it would have been just a little bigger than London Terrace. It, it it's the biggest building you've ever seen. Uh, my wife's office uh, used to be over there in the Star at Lay building, so I'd, you know, we'd, after work I'd walk past it all the time to, to go meet up with her for a drink, and uh, it, it, it's huge. 
And um, but again, the remarkable thing about it is that these days you think, oh my God, it's a landscaper, eight eight hundred feet long. But the beauty of it is that they broke it up into I think it's twelve or fourteen different buildings. So as you walk by, that there are all of these separate front doors. It doesn't feel like just one building going all the way along. At the ends of uh, at Ninth uh, Avenue and Tenth Avenue, they're kind of two towers at each end they kind of taper up with these penthouse apartments in them so uh it's really you'd think it'd be a little scary to live in a building that big but the apartments are beautiful and there's this amazing pool in the middle and a garden and so that they were very successful at um uh it's this firm far and wet now if that's how you pronounce it at breaking up what is an enormous building into something that's uh, really quite pleasant to walk by. There's no question that neighborhoods in New York City change, and then and they can change drastically. Do these buildings help to preserve certain neighborhoods, do you think? Yes. That, um, again, finding, finding a beautiful apartment in the city is hard. And I think that in neighborhoods, like even the Upper West Side, not too long ago, that there were parts of it that just weren't, weren't so great because of their solidity, because of their permanence, that people will want to live in them. And I think that, you know, whatever is going on with the neighborhood, good or bad, is like, that's my home. That is my neighborhood. I'm going to stand by it. So I think that's part of it. But also when neighborhoods are being uh, uh, rejuvenated, that uh, developers rightly look for buildings with good bones and with a um, kind of a provenance to them. I, I really think so that they, they, they've I don't know who said it that uh, the monuments are what define a city in many ways and I think great architecture great residential architecture is a huge part of New York it's very fortunate to have this and so when neighborhoods uh, reestablish themselves that uh, people gobble up the beautiful buildings very quickly how many buildings total are featured in this book it's about 80 85. Uh, but in terms of the addresses and the ones we looked at, I, I bet they're 500. And uh, what it was was that I wanted to make sure that, you know, if you were fascinated with pre-war, pre-wars, if you're studying them or history, you could just see, well, who were the architects who designed all the buildings on West End Avenue who, and not just the fabulous ones? Or that if you wanted to know where most of the Rosario Candelas were, kind of like where all the Picassos, you could find them. But I wanted to make sure, at least in the back, that there were, you could really use it as a reference book as well. Do you have a dream apartment in this book? Uh, yeah, that, uh, of course, I had, there had to be one. And um, uh, there's this, one of the architects, J.E.R. Carpenter, did some of the fanciest buildings on Fifth Avenue. Very restrained, very refined. But he did two on the west side. And there's one, uh, 173 to 175 Riverside Drive. And uh, it's on this curved section of the street. And uh, it's kind of a secret that I'm sure the people who live there know that it's uh, by Carpenter. But it has some of the most beautiful floor plans I've ever seen. It has this beautiful, graceful curve as it bends around. And uh, not many buildings have that. And uh, it's kind of neo-Gothic, which is a little different. And so it has a bit of understated flair, a bit of the curve, but it's kind of... It seems all the lessons that Carpenter learned designing the most fabulous apartments, he applied to this beautiful private building on Riverside Drive, which, of course, is not cheap. But kind of you get all the lessons of the greatest apartments into something more modest. 
What would you say you learned most by putting this book together? Uh, how much I love New York. And uh, I know that's an easy thing to say, but it's it's and the history of them and how New York changes and how redevelopment and change is so important to creating um, uh, a great city that, uh, you know, that you, all, you read about all the, the battles today over a new building going up. Well, in the 1920s, they tore half of the city down to make these beautiful neighborhoods. These were skyscrapers of the day. And then I'd say one other thing is, although it's about the book was about history, it's about the old days, is that um, sustainability is a hot topic these days. It's a big thing we do at work. And really, that these apartment buildings, however, I think they're old and were done long before uh, sustainability became an idea, is they are one of the most sustainable ways to live in the entire world. Where if you think a lot of people stacked in buildings right on the curb line next to subways without cars near parks, that uh, you really can't beat it. And they weren't thinking about that at the time, but they, they really are in terms of the energy use per family uh, is probably, I wouldn't say it's the lowest in the world, but probably the lowest in the country almost. And so it's kind of, again, learning from history about the future is that one th thing I thought is that um, uh, to make this country more sustainable and reduce the amount of energy it uses, reinventing the modern apartment house in all cities, you know, cities around the country would probably be one of the best ways to do it because families would just say, I can live in a house, but man, that apartment's amazing. I just want to live there. And you're not trying to sell them that they're being energy efficient and recycling everything. They just want it. Mm -hmm. They want it more. They want to live there. And then all of the other parts of using less energy and things like that just come with living there. Jeffrey Lynch, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, George. Jeffrey Lynch is a partner at H3 Hardy Collaboration Architecture, a firm specializing in both residential and commercial buildings. His book, Manhattan Classic, is out now from Princeton Architectural Press. You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Borarki. If you ever wonder the history behind your own New York City building, or even who lived in your apartment, the New York Public Library may have the answer to your queries. Philip Sutton is a librarian in the Paul and Irma Milstein Division of U.S. History, Local History, and Genealogy at the New York Public Library. He joins us now on the phone. Philip, thanks so much for being with us today. You're very welcome. So if someone wanted to learn about the history of their house or their apartment building in New York City, what's the best way for them to go about that? Um, to begin with, I think they need to do a little bit of um, identification. Um, I usually recommend that um, they get some sense of their building, where it is, um, historically speaking. So they need to find out the block and lot number. It's a permanent identifier for, for lots of land um, in New York City and, and elsewhere, I imagine, that helps them track the history of their building. Also, in New York, it's a good idea to check if your building has a landmark status to see if somebody's already done some research. And another thing that's good to find out is, uh, is a notice to build number, which is a number that is associated with an application for the construction of a building on a property. And then after that, generally, uh, I tell them people that they might look at maps, um, historic maps. We have a lot here at the library in the map division. And they might try and find some pictures 
um, if they can of their building historically. And it's really to get a visual sense of the building and also to associate that building with certain numbers that can help them begin their research. And um, historic property maps are very useful because you can chart a plot of land and its development through a period in time. So would you find that block and lot number at the Department of Buildings or at the New York Public Library? You can find that. I mean, there's a number of ways of finding it. If your building is, is still standing, um, you probably the best thing to do is probably to go to the Buildings Information System, which is a Department of Buildings website, and you can load in the current address of a building, and it should pull up something called a Property Profile Overview. And in there, you'll find information about your building that, that, that will be useful to you. Uh, it'll, it'll identify the block and lot number, the new building number. There's a section called Actions on the website. If you go in there, you might find the, the notice to build or new building number. It's just called the MB number. Um, so that's a great place to start if, if to get the basics. What's the best way to find out who lived in your building or even perhaps who lived in your apartment, for that matter? Um, usually the best way to do this kind of thing, is to, I would say, is to look in the census, the U.S. federal census and in New York, the New York state census. Um, and they're available... 1940 back, um, if you can generate something called an enumeration district number, you can go in and browse the census by enumeration district and look up addresses. You can't tap in an address into most census databases, um, Heritage Quest and Ancestry are examples of those. And you can go in and you can see who is actually in the building, not just the head of household, but also the rest of the family, lodgers, servants, whatever. What if you wanted to find out how old your street is or how it got its name? Um, there, there are a number of reference materials you can use. We have in the library, and, and they may be in your, your local public library as well, um, that describe um, the, the, the histories of streets and their names and the names of neighborhoods as well. Uh, naming New York, Manhattan, and how they got their name by Santa Fierstein is one. The Street Book and Encyclopedia of Manhattan Street Names and Their Origins. There's a website called Old Streets of New York that you can visit. Um, another book that's useful for, for Brooklyn is Brooklyn by Name, How the Neighborhoods, Streets, Restaurants, Parks, Bridges, and More Came to be Named by Bernardo and Weiss. And Bronx History and Asphalt is another good book. That's by John McNamara. Have you done any research on your own home? I haven't done very much on my own home, I'm afraid. <laughs> I've done research on friends' houses. I, re I researched a, a friend's house in Brooklyn. He was trying to find that the, the people in the house had always wondered if there was a uh, uh, um, a porch on the front of their house. And, is, uh, and um, I did some research, and I found out, yes, there was a porch on the house by looking up uh, tax lot photographs at the municipal archives. Yeah, I understand that there were photographs taken of almost every property in New York City at one point in time, right? That, that's correct. Between 1939 and 1942, uh, the, the government, uh, the New York City government, um, had every single building photographed for tax purposes. And you can find those photographs um, in the municipal archives uh, in Manhattan, and um, they're accessible on microfilm as an index, but you can order some very, very nice prints um, from the municipal archives. And they, they had a similar project in the 80s as well, and um, the access copies of those buildings are online at the municipal archives website. And you also wrote a guide, a blog post, on how to research who lived in your home in New York City, and that's still online, right? I did. It's called, if you go to Google and put in who lived in a house like this, you'll find, um, you'll find this blog post, and it's full of... Uh, 
tips and sources of information, and it also provides a link to a class that I teach here at the library, a bi-monthly class with the same name who lived in a house like this. All right, Philip, any other tips that you can pass along to us if we want to research the history of our buildings or our blocks? Um, I would, there's, there's a certain amount you can do online, and, um, but there's a lot of information that's out there. Um, it's on microfilm and it's on databases. Some of these databases are subscription databases. So I would recommend coming to the Milstein Division uh, here at New York Public Library. We're a good place to do research, and we can point you in the directions of all sorts of other materials that you might find useful, uh, digitized newspapers, other genealogy um, databases, uh, city directories, that kind of thing that are very useful. And we can also point you in the direction of other institutions that have materials, for instance, the Municipal Archives, uh, the New York Genealogical and Biographical Society, New York Historical Society, Brooklyn Historical Society, the list, the list goes on. But we're a good place to come and start your research. Philip Sutton, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. Philip Sutton is a librarian in the Paul and Irma Milstein Division of U.S. History, Local History, and Genealogy at the New York Public Library. And that's all the time we have for today. If you want more Cityscape, you can hear past episodes in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can keep up on the latest Cityscape news on Facebook and Twitter. We're listed on both as WFUV Cityscape. My thanks to senior producer Veronica Volk and producer Taylor Nolk. Have a great weekend. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.